We are in a study through the book of Philippians. This is our third sermon in the series entitled Partners in the Gospel. You'll notice in your bulletin that there's a a tear-off connection card. Uh, As I preach even, feel free to look over that and fill it out, and you'll have an opportunity to drop that in the offering plate so we can have a record of your visit today. I want to look in verses number 12 through 18 for our time together in God's Word. If you didn't bring your copy of God's Word, I hope you'll bring it next week, but there are verses on the screen for you to follow along with, beginning in verse number 12. But I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. The title of the message today is A Gospel Perspective in the Prisons of Life. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, make a difference in your word, a difference that only you can take credit for. In your most precious name I pray, amen. Has something ever happened to you and you asked yourself or thought to yourself this? Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. Maybe you're growing up in a home, young person, that is less than ideal. You go to school with friends whose parents are married and love each other, but your parents are constantly fighting and screaming at each other. Your parents' friends come to their school activities and cheer them on, but your parents never show up because they're always working. You look around in your youth group and notice a lot of other young people come to church with their parents, but you're at church by yourself today. And you thought before, why am I in this home? Why has this happened to me? This isn't fair. Perhaps you finished college, even gotten a graduate degree, you even have a great job. You're kind of ready to settle down and get married. A lot of your friends are engaged or married already, and you've been going to quite a lot of weddings lately, just not your own. And you think, Lord, where's the person you have for me? I think I have a lot to offer somebody. God, why is this happening to me? This just doesn't seem fair. Perhaps you are married. Or you've been married. But not anymore. Your spouse wanted a divorce, leaving you alone as a single parent trying to raise your kids. It's hard. feels impossible at times to be both mom and dad. You're tired. And you've thought, why is this happening to me? It's unfair. You're having difficulty conceiving a child. Other people get married and seem to have one child after another with no difficulty. You just long to decorate a nursery and choose a name and shop for baby clothes and toys like other families do. And you know you would be good parents. And you think, why is this happening to me? It's unfair. You seem to be stuck in the same job, the same position. Others get promotions or 
leave for better jobs and other companies and you work hard and you do things right and you get along for, with people but, but for some reason others who were hired after you seem to advance before you and, and you're left in the same place and, and you think, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. Perhaps you wake up not feeling well. You think it's just a viral infection of some kind, no big deal, but after a week of trying to tough it out, it just gets worse, and so you go to the doctor, and he can tell something's just not right, so he orders blood work. You get a phone call to come back and see him, and you know from the look on his face, there's something not right about your blood work, and he orders an MRI, and he calls you and says, I think we see a spot that's possibly cancerous. One test after another reveals that you've got a disease you never thought you would have to deal with. It's scary. And you think to yourself, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? And the truth is I could mention many hypothetical situations like that this morning. We've all been to a place where we've thought that. There was a time when the Apostle Paul looked over the past five years of his life at what had taken place. And as he looked back at what had happened to him, he certainly could have been tempted to say, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. Follow along with me if you would. Five years earlier, he'd been worshiping with friends in the temple in Jerusalem. Some Jews who hated Paul because of his conversion saw him there with friends and started a rumor that one of these friends was a Gentile, that Paul had brought a forbidden, detested Gentile into the sacred Jewish temple. The rumor spread outside the temple and into the city. People heard it. They got upset and some hotheads instigated a mob and decided to rush into the temple where they would drag the Apostle Paul out to the courtyard and literally begin to beat him. They intended to beat him to death, but thankfully the Roman commander who was in charge of keeping peace in the city that day rushed out there just in time to save Paul from getting beaten to death. He knew Paul had to have done something majorly wrong, and so he asked his accusers, what's going on? Some said this, and some said that, but no one could agree on anything, and so he said, i got to get Paul into a safe place. These people are going to kill him, and he took him back to the barracks. Imagine when Paul got put in the barracks, he thought, why is this happening to me? I'm just trying to worship. This isn't fair. Once he got there, they were, they were about to begin the interrogation process that they would do for prisoners, which included spreading them out and beating them. But right before they did, Paul spoke up and said, hey, it's not legal for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty. And he was right. If they got caught beating Paul, who was a Roman citizen, without a real reason, they would become prisoners themselves. And so the next day, the commander put Paul in front of some Jewish leaders and asked them, have you made up your mind? What has this guy done wrong? They still couldn't agree and actually began to argue with each other. The commander got frustrated. He put Paul back into the barracks. And while Paul was in hold there, these angry Jews came up with a plan and a plot to kill Paul. The commander knew, I can't keep him here much longer without him being in danger. And so he decided to transport him to a city about 50 miles away called Caesarea. Paul was personally escorted by 500 Roman soldiers. He was being sent there to answer to the Roman governor Felix who was in charge of the entire province. While standing before Felix and answering his accusers, Felix realized this guy's not an ordinary prisoner. He answers himself with eloquence and with boldness. And on top of that, he has a number of dear friends on the outside that really care about him. So Felix, being a greedy man, 
thought he could keep Paul in prison. And surely those friends on the outside who really cared for him would give him a bribe to release Paul. If Felix couldn't rightfully accuse Paul of anything, then surely he could get some money out of Paul. You understand Paul did nothing wrong. But for two years he was kept in custody and he thought, I guarantee this thought could have occurred to him, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. But it wasn't over yet. Because after two years, a new governor came on the scene to replace Felix, and instantly those angry Jews came to try and make accusations against Paul to this new governor. They came, and they finally agreed on the accusation, but they still didn't have any proof. So the new governor thought, well, if they don't have any proof, I'm just going to take this trial back to Jerusalem, let them deal with it. But the Jewish leaders would have killed Paul had he gotten back to Jerusalem. So you know what Paul did? Paul pulled out the last card he could play as a Roman citizen. And he said, I want a hearing before Caesar. Kind of like putting it before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. The governor had no choice but to honor his appeal. And so Paul and some other prisoners got on a ship. And they head to Rome to appeal to Caesar when a storm, not an ordinary storm, a big storm came their way. The ship crashed into some rocks near an island and broke apart. The Roman soldiers wanted to instantly kill all the prisoners because they thought they would surely escape. But the commander in charge said, no, one of these prisoners named Paul is too valuable to kill. And so they ordered every prisoner who could swim, swim to shore. Every prisoner who couldn't swim, grab a broken plank and float to shore. And I imagine as Paul is treading his way through that cold water, he's thinking, why in the world is this happening to me? This isn't fair. Remarkably, though, every prisoner made it safely to shore. And they spent an entire winter on the island. When spring came, another ship came and took them to Rome. When Paul got to Rome, because he still hadn't been formally charged with anything, they let him rent a house out until Caesar was ready for the hearing. But that didn't mean total freedom. He was under house arrest, which meant that he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Just like the American courts, the Roman courts moved slowly. And he had to stay under house arrest for another two years. Every six hours, a new Roman guard would come and chain himself to Paul. Paul couldn't move unless the guard moved with him. When he slept, he had to arrange the chain so they wouldn't hit him in the face or get caught beneath his head. Two years of this. And once he finally got to Caesar, he, wouldn't, he wasn't even sure what his fate would be. For all he knows, Caesar would listen to the Jewish accusations and say, it's just one man. If it's going to keep peace in the, in the city, if it's going to keep peace with the people, who cares? No big deal. And the thought could have occurred to Paul, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. But that actually wasn't the thought that occurred to him at all. No, during his two years of house arrest in Rome, another thought had occurred to him which weirdly brought this grin on his face and this deep down joy in his heart. And he wanted to write and tell his friends at Philippi all about it. You see, as he looked over the past five years of his life and everything that had happened, the mob beatings, the unjust imprisonment, the shipwreck, the round-the-clock chains, his concern was not, is it fair? His concern was this, is it accomplishing anything for God? 
Is what is happening to me allowing the gospel to advance? And it's in his attitude, his display of joy that we see what I'm going to call a gospel perspective. And he writes to the Philippian believers under house arrest with a guard at least four feet away from him. And he says this, but I would you should understand, brethren, I want you to get this. That the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Are you getting this? Paul is saying that contrary to what you'd expect, my situation, as hard as it's been, hasn't hurt the gospel. It's actually helped the gospel. It hasn't slowed it down. It's actually sped it up. What has happened to me has really accomplished something for God. Something that would have never happened had I not gone through this. And he uses the next few verses to explain to us how that what happened to him has served to advance the gospel in two specific ways. First, people were hearing the gospel. Verse 13 says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. So people were hearing the gospel and not just your everyday people. We're talking about influential people. Powerful people, people who ha would have an impact in the future for God. And these influential people who were coming to faith by way of Paul's spreading of the gospel were the palace guards. Those guys he was chained to 24-7. It's interesting when you study who these guards for Caesar were. They call them the imperial guard. Meaning they were a very specialized, hand-picked military group. They were Caesar's personal bodyguards. They were brilliant. They were courageous. They were strong. Kind of a mixture of West Point and the Secret Service. These guys were legit. They would have served in the palace guard, they say, for about 12 years. Then after 12 years, most of them would transition out into many influential careers and positions, either in the military or government. Some went on to be commanding generals of large forces. Others went into public office and became ambassadors to other countries. As a group, listen church, these palace guards were the movers and the shakers. The opinion leaders, the future king makers. They were powerful and influential. And if you wanted to have an impact on the Roman Empire, this was a great place to start. And every day for two years, one of them was chained to Paul. And had to be within four feet of this zealous preacher. And I can't help but think that Paul had a grin on his face every time there was a guard change. Because he's thinking, I'm not chained to them. They're chained to me. I mean, no doubt early on the guards thought Paul was just like every other prisoner. Guilty of leading a political revolt or embezzling a large amount of money or something like that. But as they got to know him better, after all they had to be around him six hours at a time and they listened in on his conversations, it became clear that he was under house arrest because of a man named Jesus. And over the months, as, as the rotations for the guards kept coming up and kept coming around, Paul would speak to them about this man named Christ. I, I hope you'll allow me to use my imagination because I'm thinking one of the conversations went something like this. Marcus, so good to see you again. Good to see you, Paul. It's been several days. How's your wife? Claudia, right? Last time we were together, you were concerned about a high fever. The doctor didn't know what to do with it. And I promised you I'd pray for her. I just wanted you to know I prayed for her. I want to know how she's doing. Paul sees actually doing a lot better. 
I guess, thank you for praying for. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, Paul, can I ask you something? Sure, Marcus. I've heard you talk about this Christ and all, and after Claudia got sick, she almost died, I thought, I wonder what would happen to her after she died, and I just began to think of these things, and what do you got to say about that? Christ and death and all these things. Can you share with me? Well, absolutely I can. We got six hours to do it. <laughs> think about it this way, Marcus. Suppose at some public event that you're standing behind Caesar. You're guarding him, and a, an assassin sneaks up behind you with a knife. He's going to quickly stab you in the back and then get to Caesar. But then imagine right before he strikes another bodyguard, let's say your friend, the guy that you just relieved here, Lysias, let's say he sees what's happening and he quickly tries to intercept. And in doing so, he gets the knife right in his heart and dies while saving you and Caesar. Now, Marcus, his death, if that happened, that'd be important to you, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, Paul. You know why his death would be important to you? Because it saved your life. Marcus, that's kind of how it is with Jesus. His death has the power to save your life forever. And so it would go. Guard after guard after guard, chained to Paul, would hear about Christ. And those guards would go and talk to other guards about the prisoner that was so in love with Jesus. It was like Paul's chains were having this giant rippling effect through the palace. Pardon the pun, but it was a chain reaction. I had to go there. That's what Paul saw. Because of what happened to him, people were being one to the Lord. People who could have a huge impact in the future. And that's what mattered most to him, more than his own personal convenience or the fairness of his situation. But there's another way that Paul's situation served to advance the gospel. Not only were people hearing the gospel, people were sharing the gospel. Look at verse 14. And many of the brethren, the Lord waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is incredible. As other pastors and believers in Rome saw Paul's courage, said, man, if he can speak in prison like that, then, man, we can speak out here like that. And it gave more boldness to share the gospel. Unfortunately, verse 15 says that some of these pastors who were preaching Christ had mixed motives. Not all of them, of course. He said some of them had goodwill, but some of them were hoping to stick it to Paul a bit. They were preaching the right message, but at the same time, they, they wanted to rub it in Paul's face. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. What's going on here? Well, the problem was that Paul was getting too much attention in their opinion. Paul, listen, this big shot prisoner being guarded by Caesar's imperial guard was getting a little too famous. Prisoners aren't supposed to get famous like that. And he's having a little bit too much success and they got a little jealous. I mean, who was Paul to come into their city and experience more success by way of the gospel than they ever have in their freedom? Yeah, he's in chains and he's doing it. It became a rivalry to them, and, and they thought, we're going to step it up a bit, because if he can preach like that in prison, we can do that out here, and we're going to start holding rallies, and, and we're going to start getting a lot of press. And you know what? That preacher's going to see he's not the only evangelist in this city. And it's going to finally hit him that he, he can't go four feet without hitting the end of a chain. And Paul knew this was going on. It's wicked. That's wrong. But listen to Paul's response to these envious preachers in verse 18. This is a gospel perspective. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. 
And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now watch here. Paul said, I'm aware that there are some preachers, and they're out there, and they have mixed motives. I know they want to agitate me, and I know they're jealous of what God is using me to do. But listen, Philippian believers, it's okay. Stop sticking up for me. Stop getting all insecure. Stop huffing and puffing. You're apostle, you're missionary. I know I'm in prison, but everything's going to be okay. You know why? Christ is being preached. Even if they do it with impure motives, my situation has given them some increased urgency to preach the gospel. And that brings me joy. And on top of that, there are some other pastors that are actually doing it right. So quit focusing on the ones that aren't. They understand that God has strategically placed me here in Caesar's palace so that I can influence powerful people and defend the gospel at the highest level of government in the Roman Empire. They're praying for me. They're helping me. They're loving me. They're doing their part. Watch here. Watch. To Paul, it wasn't about his chains. And it wasn't about his critics. It was about the advancement of the gospel. It was about making Christ known to others. And if it took getting beaten, falsely imprisoned, shipwrecked, and if it even took him being chained to a Roman guard 24-7 for two years, so be it. If it meant that his situation could serve to advance the good news. What a perspective. Could it be today that what has happened to you which seems so unfair, might be God's way of really accomplishing something for himself. Could it be that there are some people that really need to hear the gospel in your path and the way they're going to hear it most clearly is through your chains? Young person, I know your home might be less than ideal, but do you really think God messed up? Do you think that the sovereign God of the universe forgot to do his research before he allowed you to be born into your family? Absolutely not. A gospel perspective would would tell us that that it, it could be because God is using you to reach your parents and your grandparents for him, and you're the only one that can do it. Because they're going to see the change that Christ has made in your life. They're going to see the enthusiasm you have to go to church and to do right. And just maybe your testimony over a long period of time will start a chain reaction through your family that would have never happened if you weren't born into that home. So you're not married. That means you might have a little extra time perhaps. I don't know. So one summer you decide to go with our youth pastor and youth pastor's wife and be a counselor at a youth camp for a week out of the summer. I'm just thinking what a gospel perspective might look like. You and a certain young person really click that you're overseeing that week and have some great spiritual conversations and the power of your influence and the power of the preached word that week puts it on. You, God uses those things to, to, to convince that young person they need to surrender their life to full-time Christian service. So they graduate high school. You stay in touch. They go to Bible college or seminary to study the word of God. And while they're there, God convinces them, I want you to be a foreign missionary. And so they surrender to that and they get their support and they go and they they begin to preach to an unreached people group in Africa. And it starts a chain reaction. 
And every time they're able to give their testimony, they go back to that, 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 that single person that, that came and was my counselor at camp. And they gave me love and they gave me attention and, and they influenced me for Christ. Had it not been for them, I wouldn't be in Africa right now. You started a chain reaction. Your singleness started a chain reaction. Maybe you've been divorced. It's you and your child now. You're in a custody battle. You're not sleeping well because you can't stop thinking about how you're going to pay the bills and how it's affecting your child. And so one morning you go to work and before you go, you drop off your child at daycare. The babysitter invites you again to her church. You've said no so many times. This time's different. You need help. So you finally take your kids with you and your child with you, and you go and hear the gospel preach for the very first time. You didn't understand it all. You just know it was for you. And so it kept you coming back until you were finally convinced you needed to give your life to Christ, and you did. Then you got involved in church. Your kids got plugged in. You got remarried to a widower in the church. You became a teacher for a real ladies' Bible class and began leading other single moms through their struggle. That's a true story, by the way, of my aunt in Fellowship Baptist Church. A chain reaction and the gospel is being advanced. Your difficulty in conceiving a child leads you to foster care. Over a period of years, scores of children come through your home. Each one learns about Christ. As they grow and get married, each one establishes their own Christian home. Each one raises their kids to know Christ. Kids who will do the same thing when they grow up. Because of your situation, a chain reaction has started and is going to affect generations to come. The gospel is advancing. You're stuck at the job you're unable to move on from or get a promotion at. Could it be the reason you're still in that spot has nothing to do with your lack of competence? Could it be the reason that you're there still is because you're developing a friendship with one of your coworkers and you occasionally talk to them about spiritual things? And suddenly that coworker goes through a tragedy in their life and who do they search out to talk to about it? You. And through those conversations, you're able to lead them to Christ. And they bring their kids and spouse with them to church. And their kids get saved at Vacation Bible School. And pastor leads their husband to Christ. And then they begin to invite people to Friend Day the next year. And some of them come to know Christ. It's a chain reaction. Your situation served to advance the gospel. You're getting cancer treatments. You're getting a heart cath done. Again, as one of our members just did. You're dealing with chronic back pain and You can hardly stand it, or one of your sick kids get really sick. And you say, why, God, why these chains? Why me? Then one day, while sitting in the doctor's office, you strike up a conversation with that nurse who you've seen the last couple of times, and perhaps she's taking your blood pressure when she makes this comment. I've seen your chart. I know what you're going through. I'm sorry you have to deal with this. And you kind of take that as, as an open door to, Share Christ, and so you tell her, listen, I I wouldn't choose this for my worst enemy, but I I do want you to know that God has taught me so much about himself through this. And and that arouses her curiosity, and so the nurse replies, what do you mean by that? Well, he's just taught me that life is fragile, and I need to live for him the best I can with every waking moment I have. And the nurse replies, man, I I wish I could have that same attitude. I don't have your disease, but there's some things going on at home, and I'm so stressed out. Can you pray for me? And you pray with her. And before you walk out of, the, out of the doctor's office, you turn back and say, hey, why don't you come to Fellowship Baptist Church? I, I don't know if you'll get all the answers, but you'll probably be encouraged. And she said, do they have a nursery? Yep. We're about to have three of them. Come on. 
And she says, okay, I'll, I'll come. And she comes, and over time she accepts Christ. And then, you know what she does? She goes back to work and begins sharing Christ in an appropriate way with almost, you know, 100 patients every week. Tells her story to discouraged, confused, scared patients. And it's a chain reaction that was started because of your seemingly unfair situation. I wonder if you're looking at your situation as an avenue through which the gospel can progress. Or if you came to church and all you can think about is this is so unfair. Why is this happening to me? When is the last time you used your chains to share the gospel? If you ask Paul, Paul, was it fair? What's happened to you? Is it fair? He would have said, absolutely not. I didn't do anything wrong. If you'd ask, has it been fun? Has it been enjoyable? Would have you chosen this for your own life? He would have said, of course I wouldn't. But in the midst of it all, he stopped and he asked himself, is what's happening to me accomplishing something for God? And when he saw that the answer to that question was yes, that mattered more to him than his own personal convenience or the fairness of his situation. In fact, he said, it brings joy to my heart. My friend, God does not promise that our circumstances will be fair. But he does promise that we will always have something in them that connects to Christ. Something that will serve his purpose. But here's the thing. You have to look for it. The text teaches us this today. What's happening to us can actually serve to advance the gospel. And that should matter more than our personal convenience. Or the fairness of our situation. And when we learn to have that perspective in the prisons of life. We too will be able to say like Paul. I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, because Christ is being made known through me. Corey Ten Boom is best known as the author of The Hiding Place, an account of her time as a prisoner in a German concentration camp. She wrote another book, less well-known, called Tramp for the Lord, and when she told about a woman, an older woman she met in Russia, during the Cold War, when Christians were getting persecuted. The old woman, Corey wrote, listen please, was reclining on a sofa. Multiple sclerosis had done quite a job on this woman. It's a true story. Her body was twisted in every direction, and she depended on pillows to prop her up. She had no mobility, so her husband's time was completely consumed by her care. Corey wrote that the index finger of her right hand was all she could control, nothing else. But all Corey said what she got from that finger. It moved across a typewriter keyboard all day and late into the night, typing out words and sentences and paragraphs as she translated the Bible and other Christian books into her own Russian language. Her husband watched and noticed that it often took the wrinkled old finger quite a long time to hit a key. But on it moved letter by letter through books of the Bible. And then Corey Ten Boom came to visit this lady. She looked at the twisted skeletal frame sitting on the sofa and compassion overcame her so much so she stopped right there and prayed this out loud. Oh Lord, why don't you heal this poor woman? The husband saw how deeply moved that Corey was and he said, I quote, 
God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone. And she's the only person who can translate the Bible undetected by the police. I'm sure that crippled old lady and that weary husband could have thought, why is this happening to us? This isn't fair. But they didn't. You know why? Because they had a gospel perspective that gave them joy. They realized that their situation was serving to advance the gospel. God help us to have a gospel perspective in the prisons of life. How do I respond to a message like this? Well, there's one of three ways. Listen closely. You can never have a gospel perspective if your life has never been changed by the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus. What's the good news of Jesus? He died for you. And he rose again so that you could have eternal life. Can you go back to a, to a place... A place. I don't care if you have the date or not. I don't care if you remember what you said. I want a place. Can you go back to a place where you met Jesus? Where someone showed you you were a sinner in need of a Savior. In other words, if something were to happen to you and you were to die today because that's quite possible, do you know for sure you'd be in the presence of Jesus? And why? The only fitting answer is because you believe he died for you and for, forgave your, willing to forgive your sins and he rose again and you remember a time when you accepted him by faith into your life. Do you remember that? If not, you just got to do three simple things. You got to admit that you're a sinner. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. You got to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. What good news. You've got to call upon God to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, I love it, shall be saved. You don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to go to bed scared anymore. You don't have to no longer say, I hope I get to heaven. I've got to get my act together so I will. It's not about your getting your act together. It's about the wonderful grace of God. And all you've got to do is, is believe that call upon him to be your savior today and the great thing about that is we offer an invitation where you can meet me or you can meet our pastor right down here in the front and we'll show you we won't embarrass you we'll take you to, to a side room and show you without any pressure at all how you can know for sure that you're saved today maybe you know that and that's a good thing here's a second possible response if you're, if you're in a prison of life right now and I know some of you are I know some of you are in prison financially and relationally and health. You're scared for your family and other things. I, I know that a lot of prisons could be represented by the seats in this place. If that's you today, here's how you respond appropriately to this message. Listen, whenever I pray and whenever the altars are open, you come. Bring your spouse with you. Bring a friend with you and say, God, give me a gospel perspective in this prison. I'm so discontent. I'm so unsettled. I'm so angry. I'm so confused. It's okay to tell God that. This is an honest place. God, help me to know that you're using my situation to advance the gospel. That's a proper response. Well, Brother Tyler, I'm saved. I'm not really in a prison of life. Then God said my house should be called a house of prayer. You shouldn't leave this place without meeting with God in prayer. And so for you, 
I would invite the entire church to come down to the altar. And here's what I want you to pray about today. Everybody else who is in a prison. If you're not there, would you come pray for somebody you know is? And say, God, help them to get through this with your grace and your mercy and your strength. Would you stand to your feet? Every head bowed and every eye closed.